0: Hey friends, Pastor Brooks here. I just want to thank you for checking out this podcast and to acknowledge that this teaching was created in collaboration with Practicing the Way and John Mark Comer. They are doing great work to provide discipleship resources for the church, and so we give them our gratitude and encourage you to check them out at practicingtheway.org. For now, enjoy the podcast.
1: Please remain standing and turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter five verse 3. Luke chapter eleven, verse five to thirteen. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is not shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give you anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you.
0: Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here in this place, and we thank you for your word, and now we just ask that you would come to us here and speak to us where we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and take a seat, everyone. The sun is shining in the Pacific Northwest, at least it was when I started writing this. Uh, Spring is in the air, flu season, RSV season is behind us almost, which means that for our family, we finally get to take Phoebe, our eight-month-old baby, out on the town. Uh, Whether it's to meet up with friends or to hang out in our favorite hip, expensive coffee shops, she finally gets to, you know, just be out in the The world and so now one of my greatest joys is just seeing her she if you've ever seen her, she's got these wide eyes and she just takes she just drinks in her surroundings and it's beautiful and with all of our outings it also means more time meeting you guys and it also means more time with the grandparents Um, now think back to when you were a baby uh, or at least as far back as you can remember um, and I ask this question because I know a lot of us grew up in Vietnamese households, but do you remember the first words you were taught when it came to meeting new people? Like the first time, the first time Phoebe met her grandparents, like without even thinking, like when they walked through the door, I held Phoebe and I said to her, Phoebe, I'm you know, which, if you're familiar with Vietnamese culture, is the first greeting we're taught when we're infants. It's like the primitive babble version of hello. Acceptable only if you're an infant. And this, you know, this is the first way we're taught to greet or to talk to our elders. And then as we grow into toddlerhood and childhood, the greetings, they progress, right? We go from ah to to or chào back. And so from a young age, we are taught how to talk to adults and elders. And we're taught greetings, and then, and then had to respond respectfully with a, yeah, combined with like an awkward smile, nod, and like a mini bow. And like, I, I remember the near, this is dramatic, I know, but I remember the near traumatizing experiences when we would be like leaving a party or like a family function, and then like dread would come over me because I knew my parents would make me go around and like say make my rounds and say bye to literally, or to a back, to literally everyone in the room, whose names I could never remember. Like, we've all been there, right? It was terrible. Um, Fortunately, those days are behind me, hopefully behind you two. Um, I feel from those wounds. Um, But while childhood lessons like these taught me how to talk to elders in Vietnamese, they didn't really teach me how to talk with people in Vietnamese. And this became most apparent when we would go on family trips to Vietnam and I spent time hanging out with my cousins who were my age. You know up until then I had, I only had practice talking to elders and never with elders and definitely not with my own peer group. And so when I hung out with my cousins they would be like really weirded out by the way I talked. Because I was talking, like, super politely and respectfully as if I was, like, addressing adults and, and older people. And they'd be like, dude, stop talking to us that way. It's weird. Like, I'd be adding yeah to, like, every response, which is, like, a, 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 like an extra respectful yes, you all know. And they'd be like, oh, please, stop that. Oh, my goodness. Now, just imagine, you know, I'm, it'd, be, it's, it'd be like me hanging out with Chris. Um, he's using all of his cool colloquialisms and Gen Z lingo that I just... Have no clue about. He'd be using all those terms, and I'd be addressing him as like sir, or adding little niceties like please or if you will um, to every sentence. It'd be Really weird, right? Conversation would be stiff, impersonal, and it would just betray the fact that we're not that close. Chris is not here, but we're, I think I think we're close. Um, if you think about it, though, if you think about it, for a lot of us, this is kind of how our relationship with God is. Like, we know the pleasantries, we know the formalities, but a lot of times it doesn't go far beyond that, right? Like, we know how to address him in prayer. Dear God, Heavenly Father, etc. And, and so we approach him with the right, quote-unquote, right greetings. You know, we direct prayers in his direction. We talk at him. We send requests his way in a way, that's as polite, respectful, maybe as serious as possible, as holy as we can. But I mean, who here, who here talks to their close friends like that? You know, who, here, who here prays in the same way they talk to their friends? Now, I am not saying that there's anything wrong with, with formal language, and I definitely think there is a sacredness to talking to and, and communing with God, but at the same time, the way we talk to God is usually a good indicator of the nature of our relationship with God. Like if our, if our prayers tend to be super serious and like puffed up with formal language, probably shows what we think of God and how we relate to him. We think he's super serious, high and lofty, but in a distant way. If our prayers tend to be really formulaic and rote, then our relationship with him is likely pretty surface level, or or maybe we just don't know how to relate with God. In that way, our our relationship with God is very similar to our relationships with our friends and our peers. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus invites us past all of the niceties, past all of the greetings and the formalities, and into actual, real, deep relationships. This is why Jesus says things like that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And not only does Jesus invite us into that same closeness, that same intimacy, he walks us into it through a progression. So last week, we, we looked at how Jesus teaches us to talk to God, specifically through the Lord's Prayer Today, we take a step into more personal relationship with God as Jesus teaches us how to talk with God. And then in the coming weeks, we'll talk about listening to God and being with God. But today, talking with God. So with that, keep your Bibles open to Luke 11 again. Last week, we looked at the first four verses where the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And he teaches them how to talk to God. And we made that our prayer. But today we pick it up in verse 5. So we'll just read it again. And Jesus said to them, Which of you has a fr- who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot, give you, I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, or because he keeps insisting, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So, who reads this and just finds the wording a little confusing? Yeah, a little bit, right? Are you like, so is is Jesus saying that God is like the grumpy guy who doesn't want to give the other guy bread, but does because he won't stop knocking on the door? You might, you know, you might interpret it that way, but it's actually not the case at all. Jesus is basically expressing, if this grumpy guy in this illustration of mine, if even he will give bread to the guy who asks, how much more will our good Heavenly Father give? Like, how much more generous and loving is our Heavenly Father? Does that make sense? Good. Uh, So, note... This is an old form of teaching that Jewish rabbis used to use that that scholars now call the the how much more example. So let's pick it up in verse 9 now. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish... Well, instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, we will give him scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, if our earthly fathers, who are, are sinful, know how to give good things to us kids, then how much more will our Heavenly Father give? How much more generous and loving our Heavenly Father. And notice how Jesus, again, uses this imagery of Father and Child. There's a progression here. If we think back to last week's passage, the Lord's Prayer, where where Jesus starts out by teaching his disciples to talk to God, in this case through a pre-made prayer, our Father in Heaven. And we compare that with this week's passage. Jesus is taking his disciples and us into the next step talking with god to come to god our father with our needs and our desires for my vietnamese people it's like moving from like ah, and into a back into actual conversation and relationship the progression if you think about it is a lot like learning a skill like a language or playing a musical instrument many of us here have dabbled in music at some point in our lives uh usually we start by learning chords and and scales, like note reading and even basic music theory. And if you're a jazz musician, I know there are some of you out there, then it's like a lot of chords and a lot of scales. And and then some of us get hung up there because it's just not super exciting or or not as glamorous as we thought. Like we wanted to learn that soundtrack. Turns out you have to practice piano for like three years before you can get there but these chords and these scales they become the building blocks and the language that we then turn into music we then move on from that to learn beautiful pieces of music to improvise or even to write our own music if you've ever tried skateboarding you know that you you need to just get comfortable balancing first and and turning by leaning and then from there, the big building block for literally everything is learning how to ollie, right? You have to learn how to ollie first, and then, and that can take a while, and then you can move on to cool things like kickflips or whatever. Um, in the same way, Jesus leads us into relationship and connection with God through the basics. They're teaching us first that he is our loving father, and that he is close. But then he leads us deeper into conversation, talking with God. If you're taking notes, we'll divide it into three points. Three points of conversation, or or three launch points for relationship with God, and they are gratitude, lament, and petition, or or intercession. First, gratitude, which we can define simply as giving thanks and, and talking with God about all that is good in your life and in the world around you. If you think about it, it's a big part of how we relate with our friends. We share our highs in our lives and relate with each other about the cool things that are happening in and around us. In the same way, gratitude is a gateway to relating with God. It's like sharing our highs with him. But more than that, gratitude opens our minds and our hearts to who he is, to his character. Because graciousness and generosity happen to be at the heart of God's character. God exists as the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, with each part giving and offering to the other parts. And so generosity is just a core part of who God is. To get deep into that, we need like a whole teaching series on, on the Trinity. But on a more basic, practical level, gratitude is just a great way to step into prayer, especially if you're new to it. Like anyone here struggled to know what to say to God or know what words to put together. The easiest way to get into it and to to orient yourself, to make yourself aware of God's character, aka his love and generosity, is to give thanks. Jesuit priest Timothy Gallagher states, recognizing God's loving gifts and recognizing God's loving presence through them, summarized by the word gratitude lies at the very heart of our entire relationship with God. Pastor and writer John Mark Comer puts it this way, gratitude isn't just the beginning of a prayer, it's the heart and soul of our entire relationship, of our relationship with God. And so thanksgiving reorients us before God, leading us into the right posture before him. And it also helps us to experience his character and presence in our lives. Thanksgiving and gratitude also happen to be marks of spiritual maturity because they are linked to joy, which is the second fruit of the spirit, a fruit that comes out of doing life with him. So gratitude is a gateway to joy. Like, do you ever notice how the most joyful people tend to be the most grateful people? Like, for them, everything is a gift. Life is a gift. Nothing is owed to them. And if everything feels like a gift to you, then every day starts to feel extra special and blessed. Almost, like, almost as if every day were like your birthday or Christmas. And I don't know about you, but that's a pretty great way of living. Now on the flip side, people who have little to no joy tend to be people who are not grateful. For them, nothing is a gift. They feel like they have a right to everything. And we're not talking about basic human rights here. They feel entitled and so their lives are characterized by entitlement and comparison, which results in a severe lack of joy. If gratitude is a gateway to joy, then the opposite is also true. Ingratitude is a gateway to joylessness, but also to sin. Listen to what Ignatius of Loyola writes Ingratitude is the failure to recognize the good things, the graces, and the gifts received. As such, Ingratitude is the cause, beginning, and origin of all evil and sin. And you thought that forgetting to say thank you was just impolite. Now, think back to Adam and Eve in the garden. They had everything, right? If you're in my baptism class, we just talked about that. They had everything, but they felt like it wasn't enough, which was partly what prompted them to listen to the serpent and eat the fruit. They felt like God was holding out on them. And so rather than seeing everything they had as a gift to be enjoyed, rather than seeing God's abundant blessing and provision, they saw them as things that they were entitled to and they wanted more. But if we want to enjoy God, if we want to experience his love, if we want to experience his character, and if we want to relate to him, then gratitude is the gateway to God and with that joy coming out of gratitude, life, and a lot of things in this world are good and beautiful. But there's also a lot that is not. There are things that are ugly, wrong, and evil. Now, should we deny the existence of evil and repress it all? Like, now that I know Jesus, everything is fine? No. If that's the case, should we pray about it? Should we cry out to God? Yes. Does crying out to God in sorrow or anger even make us bad Christians? No. So the next component of talking with God is lament. We had a whole series on this a few months back, but we'll sum it up simply as this. Lament is coming to God to talk, share, and cry out about all that is ugly, wrong, broken, and evil in our lives and in the world around us. And the first thing we need to realize is that lamenting or lamentation is biblical there's a whole book in the bible called lamentations and if you remember back to our our series we, where we went through this we select psalms two-thirds of the psalms happen to be psalms of lament and so biblically lament is central to relationship with god furthermore lament was much more a part of christian and church tradition and practice in ancient times than it is now. There were a lot more worship songs of lament back then, the Psalms, among others, than there are now. Nowadays, we, we've lost this in, in the, the milieu of cultures of repression, if you grew up in like a hyper-conservative context, the frightening prevalence of the prosperity gospel, and the stumbling block that is performative Christianity. But we also know from experience that lament is a hallmark of any deep relationship. It's whether or not we can dig into sorrow, pain, and all that is not right together. I, I, don't, I don't do this with people I'm not close to. Like, I only lament and cry out with people who I consider close friends. And so lament is a sign of intimacy or closeness. I lament the most to God, but also to my wife, Amanda, and my closest friends. I have the space to pour out my sadness, my sorrow, my anger, my frustration, my anxiety, and they listen. But they also point me back to truth and hope. A prayer life that lacks lament, lacks crucial substance because it lacks complete openness and honesty. God, who is gracious and who is close, invites us to pray all of the pain and suffering. He doesn't want us to repress it dishonestly or to whitewash it or to mask it or to just pray about pleasant, pretty things. He's our Father. He wants to hear all of it. According to writer and teacher Anne Voskamp, lament is a cry of belief in a good God. A God who has his ear to our hearts. A God who transfigures the ugly into beauty. And so just like gratitude, lament ultimately turns us back to the character of God. He is good. He does deal with evil in our lives and in the world. We know he does so through Jesus, but also through us. Remember, We're co laborers, co workers with God. To lament to God is to process pain in a mentally and emotionally healthy way. And so when we lament, we are changed. When we lament, we acknowledge that the world is not as it should be. We acknowledge that there is a God who is fighting evil. But we also acknowledge that we have a part to play. Lament does something in us and through us. And so lament leads us to our third point, petition and intercession. And then ultimately to participation as we pray for God's kingdom and will and then become a part of that. But more on that in a few weeks. Petition and intercession are, if you've never heard these words before, they're just intelligent sounding words that can basically be boiled down to this. Asking. Comer puts it this way, Asking God to fulfill his promises to overcome evil with good. To petition is to ask God to do something on our behalf. To ask him to do something for us. Intercession or to intercede is to ask God to do something for someone else. This is how we love others through prayer. This is when we pray for other people. Author and teacher Paul Miller writes in his book, A Praying Life, which is a great book. I highly recommend it. All of Jesus' teachings on prayer in the Gospels can be summarized with one word. Ask. Here in verse 9, Jesus teaches, ask and it will be given to you. In John 15, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Elsewhere, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Most of the time, most of the time, I think our prayer lives are, are dry or, or non-existent, simply because we don't ask. You know, asking—I don't know—hurts our pride or our illusion of control and self-sufficiency. Maybe we'll ask if we're like really desperate, like as, as a last resort. And a lot of times we don't ask because deep down we don't believe that prayer works, or we don't get the answers we want. According to Charles Spurgeon, whether we like it or not, asking is the rule of the kingdom. Now, a closing word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus teaches us to ask, right? But he gets more specific. He teaches us to ask in his name. In John 14, he tells his disciples, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Most of us here probably end our prayers with, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, right? But interestingly, it's actually never used that way in the Bible. It's less a special postlude, or just that thing you tack on, and more a way of praying. Two points on that. First, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are reminding ourselves of our status as those who are in Christ as we come before God. When we come to God the Father, we don't come as just anybody, we come as sons and daughters. We come as royal heirs in His family, adopted into His family through Jesus. This is our truest identity, this is our right to prayer, and this is our access to God and to his kingdom through prayer. Second, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are aligning our prayers with his heart. We long for and ask for the things that he would want. Comer writes, we ask in Jesus' name when we ask for the kinds of things Jesus would ask for in a given situation. That's the sacred alignment through which the miraculous power of God flows. This is why, if you pay close attention to the prayers of Scripture, be it from Moses in the Old Testament or Paul in the New Testament, they don't pray problems. They pray promises. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we are banking on and calling on God to keep his promises. And so ultimately, praying in Jesus' name is formational. Prayer changes us. It's identity formation or, or reformation. We remember our truest identity. And we align ourselves to the heart of Jesus. Now, to end, to pray in Jesus' name is to believe that our prayers do truly make a difference. And the sad truth is that very few Christians actually believe it. And this is what makes our prayer lives dry. And what's worse, few Christians believe that spiritual forces are actually at play in this world, which is why we don't pray. The Christian philosopher Dallas Willard, who I quote too much, writes God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that He is answering our prayer when He is only doing what He was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. As we said last week, the way that Jesus himself The Lord's Prayer, specifically your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, assumes that God's kingdom has come in part, but not yet in full. And that prayer actually makes a difference. Otherwise, we would not pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We have to remember that God created us to be co-laborers or co-workers with him, loving and caring for the world. God's kingdom is coming. His will is being done. Our God is addressing evil, injustice, and brokenness in the world. But it just so happens that we get to be a part of that work. And that was all part of the plan. Friends, this is our calling, this is our purpose, and this is our responsibility. And this is a beautiful opportunity to pray and through that to partner with God in bringing his kingdom and his will into this world more and more each day. Theologian Walter Wink writes this, history belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Even a small number of people firmly committed to the new inevitability on which they have fixed their imaginations can decisively affect the shape the future takes. These shapers of the future are the intercessors. In other words, our prayers have a bearing on the future. Our prayers make a difference. So let us join with Jesus and pray. Let us come to God with gratitude, lament, with petition and intercession. Let us ask. Let us, through prayer, open ourselves to having his will done. And let us, through prayer, join God in his good work here on earth. Let us both pray and also be an active part of your kingdom come, your will be done. Here, in our hearts, on earth, as it is in heaven. Will you stand and pray with me? Father God, we thank you that what you desire, what you invite us into, and what you make possible is deep, soul-satisfying relationship. We thank you that through your Son we can come to you, that we can call you Father. And Lord we we're, we're sorry that we just forget this. But today Lord we just ask that you would remind us of who we are. We are your children, we are your heirs. And we can come to you because you are our father. And so Father we lead, we ask that you would lead us to come back to you. To enjoy you. To be with you to be loved by you and then love you. And father we also pray lord that you would lead us to join with you in all that work in all the work that needs to be done in our world. Let us partner with you and participate you with you as we pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen.